Welcome back, goblins! I'm your host, Jason, and you're listening to the Esoteric Book Club, your source for the mysterious, the paranormal, and the weird. Before we start, I want to thank my patrons and give a shout-out to my top-tier patron, Samantha Shaver. Do you want to be acknowledged on every show? You can join my Patreon for as little as $1. Proceeds go towards reading material, server costs, and keeping a steady flow of caffeine in my bloodstream. I also just finished with the Cryptid Bash hosted by the Moth Boys podcast, and I had a blast. Thanks to everyone who showed up, and hello to all of my new listeners. Thanks to you, this show crossed a new milestone. 1,000 downloads. And then we quickly blasted past that number. So thank you, thank you, thank you. That said, let's get into tonight's show. Tonight, we get back into the subject of aliens with the book The Zoologist's Guide to the Galaxy by Dr. Arik Kirschenbaum. Dr. Kirschenbaum is a zoologist who has done extensive work in the translation and interpretation of both wolf and dolphin communications. He is also a lecturer and fellow at Girton College, University of Cambridge, and sits on the board of Medi.org. I know it's early for a tangent, but I've got to know what METI is. Based in San Francisco, California, METI, or Messaging Extraterrestrial Intelligence, was founded in 2015. Basically, it is an expanded version of the SETI program that utilizes different methods of communication to make contact with neighboring star systems. As part of the private sector, METI has drawn some criticism from various scientists who caution us from randomly messaging aliens. In short, they're warning us about extraterrestrial stranger danger, which is something I can totally get behind. Before we can contact alien life, we need to conceptualize what alien life could be. The likelihood of contacting an intelligent mold spore is pretty low, so what exactly should we be looking for? In all honesty, we don't really know. But we can make some educated guesses based on observations of our own animals here on Earth. First, we must look at the forms that aliens could take based on their environments. This will fundamentally impact how they communicate, among other things. Beyond that, we will look at what is an alien, with whom we can communicate, and what is simply an animal, albeit an alien species. Next, the book gets into how species interact with the environment around them, how they move, communicate, how cooperative they are, and how we can determine intelligence. Finally, we have the tricky sections about how much information they may be willing to share, how that communication is distributed, and the possibility that our first contact with alien species may be with one of their machinations. Before we get too esoteric, Let's start at the beginning. How are animal forms derived? I apologize to anyone taking Animal Science 101 in class right now. This may get a bit repetitive. 
all forms derived from the need to perform a specific function, feed, procreate, or interacting with the animal's surroundings. Many of the traits can be discerned through observation. Limbs help things move. Digits aid in manipulating objects, generally to gain food, etc. Sometimes a trait isn't as obvious. For example, a zebra's stripes. There are many theories, including camouflage within a herd, or even sexual selection. But in reality, scientists have not been able to pinpoint exactly why they even have stripes. It's not random, though. There is a reason for them, even if we can't figure out what that reason is. Generally, a change in form helps an individual within a species perform not necessarily better, but differently from its peers. Some changes are harmful to the creature, resulting in a shorter lifespan. Sometimes a change is beneficial, allowing the entity to live longer and therefore have more offspring, all of whom have a chance of acquiring that same trait. This process is the general basis of natural selection. But wait! Sometimes a change has no tie to function. For example, a tiger-striped fur is excellent camouflage. So why is its skin also striped? Unless the tiger inexplicably is faced with baldness, striped skin otherwise serves no function. Changes such as this are referred to as neutral selection. They are neither beneficial nor harmful. The author explains that all of this is the basis for his theories throughout the book. There is more within this chapter, including divergent and convergent evolution, but you're not here for an anatomy lecture. You're here for the weird stuff. The last thing I'll leave you with on the subject of evolution is a thought experiment from Stephen Jay Gould. If we rewound time and allowed evolution to once again shape the world, would it look the same as it does today? Because so much of evolution is a result of random chance, the answer is probably not. In that world, we may have zebras with orange and black striped skin. Moving on, a question that pops up frequently is, what exactly is an animal? I'll save you a lot of time here. If it moves, it's an animal. Yes, this is super reductive, and there are plenty of exceptions, but by and large, if an organism moves of its own volition, it's pretty safe to classify it as an animal. Since I know I will be getting listeners writing to me citing examples of exceptions, yes, there are some animals that don't have their own means of locomotion. For example, the jellyfish. Some species of jellyfish simply float allowing the tides to direct them. They're passive feeders, so it makes sense for them to move in this way since the tides will also be directing their food sources to them. Then again, this is just based on our planet. We may have to expand our definition of animal for other worlds if we find species whose lineage includes things like the intelligent mold spore that I mentioned earlier. On the subject of movement, Let's talk about why it's important and how it can get weird. Movement is essentially needed for two things. To find food 
and to avoid becoming food. Organisms are constrained by a few factors. Energy output, space in which to move, and time, and speed. Their energy output must be less than the energy they would gain through the consumption of their food source. Think about an ambush predator such as a crocodile. They don't chase prey the way that lions do. Instead, they wait patiently and expend all of their energy in a single lunge where they lock their jaws on their prey and proceed into a death roll. The entire process causes them to exert a lot of energy. But there are parts of this process where they can minimize the output. If there is no prey, they simply wait. If they lunge and miss their target, there's no need for a death roll. They do everything they can to minimize their energy expenditure during the feeding process. The restriction of space is a bit more obvious. Is there somewhere for the creature to move to? If not, the creature isn't really going to go anywhere, are they? The final part, time, is an odd aspect, which is why I also included speed in the descriptor. Sure, the animal must be awake and active for a long enough duration to move, but they must also be capable of moving fast enough to achieve their goal. It's why we don't see predatory sloths. In fact, sloths are a good example for this. They are notoriously slow. They climb trees, so they have space aplenty as long as there are trees present. As a means to conserve energy, they evolved to increase the amount of time it takes to get anywhere. Imagine those three aspects, energy, space, and time, on a sliding scale where moving one aspect affects the other two. If one increases, the others must decrease in order to compensate. In the case of the sloth, the dial for time is turned up, allowing energy and space to decrease. Organisms are also bound by the laws of physics, which I want to point out are relative to the planet, so we may have to make some adjustments on other worlds. Some creatures have evolved to exploit certain loopholes. Have you ever wondered why fish don't float to the surface or sink to the bottom of lakes and oceans? They have an organ called a swim bladder. Think of it like those inflatable water wings that you wore on your arms as a child, except the swim bladder keeps the fish neutrally buoyant, meaning their floatability is in equilibrium with their physical mass. Because of this, a fish essentially only needs to move in one direction, forward. That's why their fins work so well, even though they aren't that strong. Outside of the fish's tail fin, which projects them forward, the other fins only serve to make minor adjustments which is all that is needed to direct their momentum. Oddly enough, there are a lot of similarities between fish and birds. Their means of movement are essentially the same. While fish developed a swim bladder, birds developed hollow bones, but their primary forms of locomotion is a short rapid movement that creates vortices behind them. When a fish swishes its tail and when a bird beats its wings, they are creating a directed vortex that displaces the medium they are moving through, giving them forward thrust. 
This means of locomotion became so prevalent because it allows the animal to cover massive distances. Remember that sliding scale we talked about earlier? If they are covering massive distances in a short amount of time, they would need to reduce the energy expenditure. That's what the swim bladder and hollow bones do. They reduce the amount of weight that the animal must move, reducing the necessary energy. So why don't we have sky whales? Yes, this is a real question in the book. Essentially, we don't have sky whales because we don't have sky plankton. Yeah, that doesn't really answer the question, because now we must ask why we don't have sky plankton. It comes down to the density of air versus the pull of gravity. As I said earlier, all animals must abide by the laws of physics. Water is more dense than air, so creatures that live in it don't have to exert as much force to fight the pull of gravity. Granted, it's not as dense as solid ground, but we'll get to that part later. Because air doesn't provide as dense a medium as water, that means more energy would have to be exerted to simply float, let alone move. In this instance, the sliding scale would break. Energy would increase, and since we can't adjust the amount of space needed to move, we can't simply make the sky smaller, so if these creatures are pursuing food, they must be able to move vast distances, the span of time necessary to move would have to decrease, meaning that they move slower. With these factors in place, a slow-moving, high-energy creature would never be able to consume enough to fuel its endeavor. In the case of sky plankton, there isn't enough airborne microorganisms to feed upon, which in turn means there isn't anywhere close to enough food for sky whales. Does this mean that alien worlds can't have sky whales? No, not at all. For example, let's say that the density of the atmospheric gases on our alien world is higher than here on Earth, and perhaps the gravity is a bit less. This would provide more loft to our creatures. If there were an available food source, and our alien sky whales developed a gas-filled organ similar to a swim bladder, there could totally be sky whales on other planets. Now, unless there are some blue avians in my listening audience, none of us are birds or fish, so we all move along solid ground. This has its benefits and its hindrances. The greatest benefit is that we can rest and relax, aka not move. We won't plummet from the sky, nor will we sink to the bottom of the ocean. Granted, flying entities aren't always in flight, and most fish are neutrally buoyant, so conceivably, neither would they. The downside is that a solid surface tends to increase friction, so attempting to schlub our forms across the ground becomes increasingly difficult. There are a few ways around this. We could go the route of snakes and shimmy in a specific way that sort of scoots us in a direction. But that also requires more energy. They get around this with specialized scales that scoop in a specific direction, giving them a little more forward thrust. Not many other creatures move like that, though. Most land-dwelling creatures have limbs, so instead of wriggling your entire body to move, Limbs allow a species to reach and pull itself forward. With a few exceptions, 
No modern animals really move like this, because there is still a significant amount of friction between their body and the surface of the earth. This is one of the reasons that older depictions of dinosaurs are so laughable. The next step in land-based movement would be to reduce the amount of friction. The way this manifests in modern animals is generally just to lift the body above the ground, aka standing upright. If your species' limbs are just a rubbery mass, this doesn't really work too well. That's why a rigid structure is needed. We see this take two forms on Earth, in both bones and carapaces. They both serve a similar function, to add rigidity to limb structures. The biggest difference is that bones are internal structures and carapaces are external. To briefly quote the author, What form legs will take depends both on the properties of the solid surface, whether it be smooth or jagged, low or high friction, and of the fluid above, runny or viscous. This means there will be variations depending on the location. The fluid through which they move refers to either air or water, at least in the case of animals on Earth. As disturbing as the thought is, air is considered a runny fluid. It flows around solid objects quite easily. Water, on the other hand, is a viscous fluid. That's why it has more buoyancy. Objects can still pass through it, but at a slower rate than they would through air. On our planet, with a few exceptions, most surfaces would be considered jagged to some degree. This is a case where friction is actually beneficial. You can't get much traction on a smooth surface, so lifting your body off the ground doesn't really assist your movement too much. In fact, it may hinder the creature because it would increase the chance of injury by fall. So now we have limbs to reduce energy expenditure, rigid support structures to help reduce friction, but we still have to make our first steps. There is one last aspect that must be in place. Can you guess what it is? Even if you don't know the scientific name for it, I bet you can at least describe it. On planet Earth, 99% of creatures have something called bilateral symmetry. That means the left side of their form mirrors the right side of their form. What benefit does this impart? Well, it's quite possible that a creature could hop around on one leg, but that increases their energy expenditure. With multiple legs, it means that they are always in contact with the ground, but they can move a limb without having any friction on the ground. Then they can redistribute their weight to the forward limb and bring the hind limb forward. This is a super complicated way to describe the act of walking, but it is how most landbound creatures move. We can combine this to a thought experiment using a moon in our own solar system, Enceladus. We've talked about Enceladus before in the esoteric news briefs, and how, because it has a liquid water system, it is one of the most likely spots for life in our immediate vicinity. The structure of the moon is odd, though. Instead of an atmosphere, it has a thick crust of ice and liquid water beneath it. The cold void of space froze the outside solid, thus locking in and insulating the surface water. 
Dr. Kirschenbaum proposes that an alien species that is more buoyant than water, meaning that they float, could conceivably have developed to walk along the surface of the icy outer crust. This would give them a weird hollow earth type effect, where instead of walking on the outer surface of a sphere like we do, they would instead walk along the inside of the surface. Another example from the book is the moon Titan. This moon is so cold that liquid water can't form, but there are still rivers. These rivers are made of hydrocarbons rather than liquids, aka heavy gases. A creature that is neutrally buoyant in these heavy gases would be able to swim like a fish. This all gives us a basic understanding of how alien physical forms could, and probably would, develop. But what about the parts necessary for communication? Communication methods, when discussed in science, are called modalities. Modalities are largely dependent on the environment in which the animal lives. We have five senses, although if you listen to this podcast, you probably subscribe to the theory that we have six, or possibly more, senses of varying degrees. Most life forms on Earth utilize these five senses, if not others. Yes, you heard that correctly. There are species on this planet that have senses beyond the five utilized by mankind. Before you get too weirded out, I'm not saying there are psychic animals out there. Instead, there are some animals who are able to sense bioelectrical fields. Most of these species are aquatic animals, such as sharks, fish, and you guessed it, electrical eels. The one species that surprised me, though, was the platypus. If this duck-billed, egg-laying mammal with poisonous thumb daggers wasn't strange enough, it can also sense electrical disturbances. If you ask me, we're probably lucky that it's landlocked in Australia. So how do senses determine communication modalities? Each sense allows us to receive different inputs that have their own unique strengths. Sight allows us to receive visual stimuli, but that stimuli is impeded by foreign objects and reduces in intensity based on the distance from the object. Sound is interesting because it's not necessarily impeded by obstacles the way that sight is, but it is completely ineffective in a vacuum. While objects don't fully impede sound, they can distort or redirect it. Scent is much like sound in that its effectiveness isn't impeded by obstacles, but it both requires air to exist and is limited by it. For example, a Sith breeze makes scent-based communication completely ineffective unless you're downwind. Touch is useful in some cases, but not necessarily a good sense for determining whether a foreign species is hostile. You wouldn't want to determine the threat level of a wild lion by touching its fangs, for example. Taste is another sense that seems to be used more for determining the safety of our food rather than for communication. While it is primarily used to tell if something is rotten, plants have developed a way to manipulate flavor to help spread their seeds. Or to not spread their seeds. There's a big difference between the flavor of a mango and that of a jalapeno pepper. While there are many ways that a species can communicate, 
it doesn't mean that they are willing to do so with us. What do we need to look for when determining if aliens are willing to share information? Oddly enough, a good indicator is a high level of technology. While it is conceivable that a single entity of a species could be intelligent enough to create massive quantities of technology on its own, the physical capabilities tend to limit it. Let's say that you want to build a new cell phone. In this example, you are knowledgeable enough to know how they function and how to assemble one. What would it take just to make the case? You would need specialized machinery to make the plastics, machinery to make the mold, injection machinery to get the molten plastics into the mold, etc. As we can see, knowledge isn't the limiting factor necessarily. Cooperation is. What is necessary for cooperation in a species? As we touched on earlier, some manner of communication is necessary. Then, a level of trust must be established. In the animal kingdom, where communication is sometimes limited, how is trust built? According to the book, it begins with family. The biological drive to replicate isn't limited to just yourself. Some animals have a social structure where only the alpha female is allowed to breed. In that instance, their immediate sisters are oftentimes their most trusted guardians and enforcers. Even if the alpha is the only one bearing the offspring, the same genes are being passed down. This may not be a conscious decision, but it is the one that evolved over time. Trust is a tricky thing, though. Pack animals remember those who do not significantly participate in the hunt. The slackers get less food, making them weaker, and therefore less likely to breed. Of course, this hasn't eliminated the trait entirely, because the slackers tend to also be more cunning. Weaker males will wait until the others are in a post-hunt slumber, and then sneak into the females for a bit of nookie. More so, they have to occasionally pull their weight, Otherwise, they will be ousted from the group, at best, or killed outright, at worst. The next layer of trust is trust in a stranger. This is where it gets tricky, because the creature must weigh the odds. Working with this outsider may make a difficult task easier, or make an otherwise impossible task achievable. But, there is also the possibility that the other will claim the entirety of the spoils for themselves. There is also less incentive to preserve the safety of a partner that you don't know, so the situation must be equally perilous for both parties in order for the task to be carried out. Think of movie tropes. Two enemies must join forces to defeat an even greater enemy, or else they both will die. They begrudgingly make a pact to work together, and sometimes they learn the meaning of friendship. Or something. I don't know. Alternatively, the outcome could be mutually beneficial for both parties. Remember what I was saying about that cell phone earlier? Maybe you make a deal with someone who has a factory for making plastics. You make another deal with someone who can assemble computer chips. And another person who makes... Well, honestly, I'm not sure what goes into the construction of a cell phone. But you get the idea. You got your cell phone. 
but so did all the other people who contributed to its construction. So when we look at alien civilizations, we look for large-scale technology, because it almost always requires multiple individuals to create. This indicates a level of cooperation and communication, making it possible that they will at least be willing to share knowledge. To what degree they are willing entirely depends on trust. And, frankly, mankind isn't the most trustworthy species, so this part may take a lot of work on our end. I found this book to be pretty fascinating, at least after I got past the introduction. That part had me worried about the rest of the book. It read like the introduction to a thesis paper, and in my head I was writing the tagline for this episode, I'm reading this book so you don't have to. I must admit, after I got past that, I was pleasantly surprised. It's not exactly a title I would read more than once, but the information in it is quite good. This show only touched on about a third of what is contained in this book. The type of people I think would benefit the most from this book are sci-fi and fantasy authors. While these subjects are often a form of escapism, I find that the best monsters and aliens tend to be those that feel real. The easiest way to achieve this is to apply the traits found in this book to their creation. I personally think it would be interesting to apply a wolf-like pack structure to a band of fantasy orcs in order to create a tribe, but that's getting a bit too far into the weeds. Anyway, I'll post a link to the book in the show notes. If you want to link up with the Esoteric Book Club, you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, Patreon, and at esotericbookclub.org. If Patreon isn't your thing and you'd still like to make a donation, I'll also post a PayPal link. Anyone who makes a one-time donation will also get a shout-out on the following show. Intro and outro music is courtesy of Sarah Rudy and her band Hello June. If you want to hear more, you can find them on bandcamp.com and at wearehellojune.com. For those who are interested, the title of the intro song is Fight, Don't Fight. That's all I have for tonight. So until next time, remember, stay weird.